Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston, and welcome to part three of our series, Palestinian Gandhi on Trial with our special guest, Isa Amro. Isa has been called the Gandhi of Palestine for his work in promoting and organizing strategic nonviolent resistance among Palestinians, Israelis, and their allies all over the world. Isa has also increasingly over the years been identified as a targeted activist, targeted with with arrests, detentions, threats, beatings. And now this targeting of Isa has reached a new level. Now, as a direct result of his work as a prominent human rights activist in the West Bank, Isa has been put on a sort of endless trial before two courts, before an Israeli military court and before a Palestinian authority court. In this episode, we're going to go deeper than we did in the last two, deeper into Hebron, deeper into the incredible inequalities there, and deeper into the ongoing targeting that Isa faces as a nonviolent activist. And when we talk about that, I think it might be useful to tell you that the kind of targeting Isa has been subjected to does have a name. It does have a category. That category is legal harassment, meaning that it is perpetrated by legal authorities and by those who have the law on their side who can, as I said, have him arrested, detained, beaten, all sorts of things without facing much in the way of consequences. One reason I mention this term legal harassment is that I think that after hearing Issa's story, you might start to see some parallels. You might start to see legal harassment happening in other contexts. It's actually a common strategy to keep an activist like Issa stressed and busy and away from their work. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Israeli case. We're not going to get too deep into the specifics of the case, because what we really want to talk about is the legal system that kind of surrounds this case and feeds this case, as unbelievable as that system may be. And speaking of unbelievable, I just, I want to say that this episode and this series brings up something that I really struggle with and worry about, and that is whether people will believe what Isa is saying and what I'm saying about the occupation. There are a lot of people who flat out deny that the West Bank is under occupation. And there are also a lot of people who admit that it is under occupation, but claim that the Palestinians live quite well under it, that they live better than they would otherwise. So that's why we're taking so much time in this program to kind of dispel any ideas like this and to talk about really what is it like to live under military occupation without access to a state, without access to a legal system that represents you in any way. But when I said this to Issa, you know, I'm really struggling with how to construct this series to ensure as much as possible that Americans will understand that this level of injustice is possible and is ongoing. Um, this is what he said. Uh, I can see that Americans will understand what is happening in Palestine by comparing the, the 1950s here in the US, how it was very hard for black people to be equal with the white, and how black people didn't have any rights here. The same in Palestine now. I am under the Israeli military law. It means I am guilty till I'm proven innocent. It means I'm not allowed to have any kind of general assembly. So peaceful protesting is not allowed. Any meeting more than 10 is, is illegal. Any meeting with more than three 
needs a special permit from the army, which is impossible to get. Any kind of mobilization is not allowed. Any kind of saying no to the occupation can be considered incitement, and they can put you in jail from one year to 10 years. So it's, it's really very severe military law. So when Isa first made this argument um, to me, it was several months ago. And I think my response was something like, I'm sorry, but I I don't think most Americans have studied the struggle for African-American rights and freedom in this country as much as you have, Isa. They're going to have to be educated on both of these things. But I... I don't want to speak too soon and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I I do think that in the past few months there has been um, a change in awareness. It's not like systemic racism is, is a new term, but there seems to be a heightened level of awareness. And there is, of course, a heightened level of documentation, new videos, new, new testimony of people getting beaten and mistreated because of the daily injustice that is still happening in this country. So I kind of wonder if, if seeing all of that, if knowing all of that, if perhaps it will make it less of a leap for people to believe that living under military occupation over the long term for over 50 years could actually be as brutal as Palestinians will tell you that it is. And to add another layer to how bad it is, that living in close proximity to a population of people in your city who are citizens of this foreign state that is occupying you and who do have access to the law and who are protected rather than oppressed by the military that is occupying you, that people in that position might begin to behave badly, very badly. So in this episode, we're going to break all of this down. We're going to give a bunch of examples to illustrate these themes. And as always, we're going to have a bunch of photos and videos. And you can go to www.talkinghumanrights.com for all of that. Just look for Palestinian Gandhi on trial part three. So let's get started. Um, When I sat down with Issa for the second interview we did for this series, I brought a photo with me. I brought the photo that we're using as the main image for this episode, which you might not see if you're listening on iTunes or some other way that's not our website. So I'll just describe it for you. What you see in this photo is Isa. Um, You see his hands are behind his back. He has two Israeli settlers kind of coming at him. You also see some men in uniforms and some men with cameras. Um, And you see, if you know the area, which I don't assume that you do, that all of this, this scene is happening on Shahada Street. And Shahada Street, as we covered in the last episode, was the main shopping area in Hebron that has been almost entirely shut down by the Israeli military. Um, The businesses and homes have been cleared out. The people have been cleared out to clear a path for a very small population of Israeli settlers, two of whom you see in this photo. But I started by just asking Isa to tell me what's happening in this photo, starting with, um, are you in handcuffs? No, okay. I'm putting my hands behind my back. Mm-hmm. So I will not be accused of uh, attacking the Israeli settlers. I was leading a group of activists who were escorting Palestinian kids to go to school in Shohada Street in Hebron. The kids, they walk down and we wanted to be with our bodies to protect the kids from the settler violence. 
And we can actually see this settler violence much better, I think, if we look at the video that was taken of the incident. So for listeners, I'll have that on the site, but um, I think we should just describe it. What, what do we see in this video? You can see her slapping me. You can see the police, the Israeli police, doing nothing to arrest her or to stop her. I was attacked physically by this settler, not only one time, many, many times. This year I was attacked maybe eight times physically by Israeli settlers without any kind of accountability for the settlers who attacked me. Yeah, it's impressive how calm you are as she smacks you in the face and the other settler, this the male settler is kind of ramming into you and your fellow activists. Um, but who were these other men in the photo? Who is the man in uniform here? The one you can kind of see usher the settler over gently after she screams at you and slaps you in the face in front of him? He's an Israeli policeman. Um, okay, so there's you, there's your fellow activists, the two settlers, two Israeli police officers. Is there anyone here from the Palestinian Authority, any law enforcement that represents you at all? No, this area is under the Israeli military control, and the Palestinian Authority is not allowed to be here at all. The street is completely restricted. The street is closed by around 10 checkpoints. In, there, in this area... Uh, which is one kilometer square, there is 22 checkpoints, 100 movement barriers. All the shops are closed by military orders. Around 520 shops in the street are closed by military orders. Around 1,000 Palestinian apartments became empty because of the military and the settler presence. I can say that I am allowed to walk only in uh, 20% of the street. The rest I'm not allowed to walk. We are not allowed to drive here as Palestinians uh, at all in this area. Palestinian ambulance needs a special uh, permit to reach where we are now in the in the, in the photo, it, we, which means you skip all the emergency cases. And uh, Palestinians are restricted from coming to here. Only the Palestinians who are registered at the checkpoint are allowed to be in this area. So the, all the Palestinian activists in the blue vest are uh, people who are living in the closed area in Hebron. So how many times were you able to do this accompaniment of the school children? We do it for maybe one month, but unfortunately the Israeli occupation denied us for maybe half of the month not to escort the kids to go to school. They kept declaring the area as a closed military zone for many, many uh, many, many days. Right. So can you talk a little bit about this issue of places suddenly being declared closed military zones? What what does that mean? That was the first military law issued after occupying the West Bank and Gaza Strip in 1967. That law can give the army the authority to declare any area as a closed military zone. They can give them the authority to arrest me for four days to eight days without seeing a judge. They can put me in administrative detention without telling me any excuse or telling my lawyer anything about me. So I can be put in jail for six months and six months and six months. And many Palestinians, we have around 500 Palestinians now in administrative detention. They don't know what they did and they don't know when they will be released. 
Okay, for listeners, um, we're going to have a lot of resources on the site about this, about the laws ESA is referencing. We'll have a text of this particular law. We'll have a backgrounder on how these military laws developed. We'll have a report from the Israeli human rights group Betselem talking about the issue of administrative detention, by which, as ESA says, Palestinians can be held without charge, without explanation for indefinite periods, starting with a six-month period that can be continually extended. Okay, Issa, and this this area that you're in, um, this restricted area, it's restricted because there are settlers living in this area, right? So what can you tell us about them? What is the status of the woman slapping you in the face in front of the police? She is under the Israeli civil law, and I am under the Israeli military law. Her legal status is much higher than mine. So that's what is happening, that we are in the same area and we have two sets of law for different people, which I consider apartheid. So she had the courage to slap me and attack me many times. And she's sure that she will not be accountable for doing that. Okay. And if, if I understand it, there aren't that many settlers in Hebron, right? We have only a few hundred settlers living in the city among 220,000 Palestinians. The few hundred settlers, they have much more rights than me, and they are under the Israeli civil law, and I am under the Israeli military law. So we have two sets of law for two different people in the same area. And, you know, you can see that they feel the power. They feel confident to attack me because the law doesn't make them accountable. There is no law enforcement on them, and they they have a kind of impunity to attack us. Me personally, I was attacked many times by the settlers physically, slapped, hit, kicked by the settlers. Even, you know, I was attacked many times in front of police. Right. Like in this video, she's attacking you and the police are right there. Um you know, this fact of you accompanying kids to school to protect them, this is, it's such a huge issue, kids having to walk into an area where their parents are afraid to go, where their parents might not be allowed to go. And, you know, as you know very well, the Israeli army even sends soldiers into the South Hebron Hills to accompany children walking back and forth to school between the village of Tuani and the village of Tuba to protect them from settlers every day, twice a day, sending soldiers in to get these children back and forth to school so they don't get killed by a settler. It's it's really nuts. You know, we have settlers, they attack the kids, they beat the kids, they prevent the kids from going to school without any accountability. Israeli settlers, you can see that they are acting wild. They, in South Mount Hebron, between Twani and Tuba, they attack the kids in the way to school. They beat them up, they throw stones at them without any kind of accountability. The main issue is that we have violent, fanatic Israeli settlers in Hebron and all, and all over West Bank. They have impunity and they can do whatever they like without any kind of accountability. So it's normal to have violent people in any community, but it's abnormal that they are not accountable for attacking, for shooting, for destroying Palestinian property. We we did talk a little bit in the last episode about the illegal settlement activity happening in Hebron. And in this tiny area where you are allowed to be, this restricted area, um, there is, there's the settlement of Beit Hadassah, which was settled 
illegally. The, the settlers were dragged out multiple times before they were finally able to convince lawmakers to allow them to be there. So that was illegal, and now it's legal and protected by soldiers all over the place. And um, and then there's another settlement on the hill um, of Tel Rumeda that was established in the 80s, and that was also established illegally, right? The settlers occupied uh, a land in Tal Rumeda in 1983 and started a settlement there, an outpost, expanded as usually happened. Then in 2002, they built another building there in Tal Rumeda, in spite that it's illegal according to the Israeli law to build in an archaeological site. I am living almost 100 meters far from that caravan and you can see that I am on the border of the settlement where Israeli settlers are occupying a Palestinian house and living in it against the Israeli law because the Israeli Supreme Court just decided that the house belongs to the Palestinians and the land belongs to the Palestinians it should be given back to the Palestinian family but unfortunately the case is in court since 15 years without any kind of a real implementation for the Israeli law even. And I believe I have seen video of you being attacked by a settler from this outpost on the hill. Were you not by um, Baruch Marzal? So what happened What happened there? 2013, February, I was sitting in my yard in Tal Rumeda with my friends drinking tea. Baruch Marzal lost in the election, I think, weeks ago, weeks before that. He came and accused me of affecting his election campaign by talking to the Israeli TV about him for being not a good candidate for the Israeli parliament or the Israeli Knesset. Because Baruch Marzel uh, was the assistant of Meir Kahana. He was the main assistant of Meir Kahana. And their movement was called Kah movement. It was considered by the State Department here as a terrorist organization and illegal. Imagine that, you know, a, a movement in Israel was considered illegal by the State Department and by the Israeli government too. So that kind of person who is very fanatic, very extreme, believes in transferring the Palestinians from Palestine to Jordan or to Saudi Arabia. He believes in killing Palestinians. He came into my property, so he stressed past in illegally. He punished me in the face, he kicked me, he broke my camera. And after that, I was arrested by the Israeli army and the Israeli police, and I was accused of attacking him. I had an obvious video that he wa- he attacked me. He came into my property, and he's not he's not allowed at all to do so. And then I filed a complaint against him. And since 2013 till now, he's not convicted. He he has some trial, but he doesn't go to the trial, and police is not enforcing. The judge demand to bring him to, to court. So it's six years in court, my complaint against a person who punished me in the face, who kicked me, who stressed past to my property with video evidence and with witnesses. Till now, he's not accountable, and I don't think they will make him accountable because he's under the Israeli civil law and there is no political will to make him accountable. So basically, if you're a Palestinian and a settler attacks you, you have to launch your case with Israel. And another wrinkle is that the settlers of Hebron can serve as soldiers in Hebron. There's no prohibition against that, as I understand it. <laughs> near my near my near my house in Tel Rumeda, a soldier was calling me Isa Isa, 
I went out to see in, to, to see who's calling me. And I found a person in an army uniform. He told me, Isa, do you remember me? I told him, no. I told, I don't remember you. And many times I saw settlers, you know, serving outside their homes. And they were acting according to their attitude, not according even the army regulations. Even they are more violent and they are more aggressive because they are living there and they know us and, they, and we know each other. So I want to talk about guns. I want to talk about the fact that the settlers are so heavily armed. Why, why are they, why do they have all this access to weaponry? Why do they have so many guns? The majority of the settlers are armed in spite of the military presence. They have a lot of soldiers, hundreds and hundreds of soldiers all over Hebron and, and thousands of soldiers all over West Bank. But the settlers, they have guns too. And they act against the law. But have they ever said why they allow them to carry guns when there are already soldiers everywhere? To have hierarchy and to have the power and to show us that they are more powerful than us. And that even we can say no to them or we see them as powerful than anybody else. And they want to have the power. It's about power. And by having a gun, it means that they have our life and they can end it whenever they want. So as Palestinians, we should give up our rights for the settlers and leave our own cities and think about building a future somewhere else, not in uh, H2 in Hebron or in Palestine in general, that you are not safe from the army and you are not safe from the settlers and they, they just can do it and they may do massacres as they did in 1994 in the Ibrahimi Mosque whenever they want. So let's talk about some more examples of how all this plays out. I'd like you to talk about the soldier Alor Azaria, who who I know you wrote about. Elor Azaria was a soldier in the Israeli army. He saw a Palestinian laying down injured, shot by other soldiers. And instead of giving him first aid and treatment according to the international law, he cocked the gun and shot him in the head uh, and he slaughtered him. That is considered uh, a war crime called in the international law extrajudicial execution. I know Elor because he arrested me on the 1st of March 2016 in Hebron. I spent eight hours with him. He was not that fanatic. He was a normal soldier implementing orders. So I think what he did to that Palestinian and execute him was an order from his commander. And I wrote about it and I said clearly that Elor Izaria is part of the system. It's not only him is the criminal, but the system itself, the incubation system. So mainly it's about the incubation system, which has Israeli soldiers, military law and military court where I go that soldier was indicted by the Israeli authorities. He got 18 months in jail only for killing a civilian. He ended his sentence after nine months in jail. I'm facing two years in jail for my nonviolence resistance. Ahdi Tamimi got eight months in jail for slapping a soldier. So that is the military law and the Israeli civil law and the biased accountability and the double standards. So uh, an Israeli soldier killed a civilian slaughtered him against the Israeli law and against the international law, spent only nine months in jail, 
and Ahmed Manasra was a Palestinian kid uh, tried to stab Israelis what which is wrong and we consider it wrong he was 12 years and a half only they sentenced him nine years and a half in jail so imagine that a child did something wrong got nine years and a half in jail an Israeli adult soldier slaughtered a civilian and spent only nine months in jail because that kid who is spending nine years and a half in jail did something wrong we all agree but he could be accountable in a different way to be sent to a behavior officer to behavior expert because i don't think a child with 12 years and a half knows what he's doing but in israel they don't take that in consideration palestinian is guilty till he or she is proven innocent on the other hand israeli settlers and israeli soldiers are innocent even after they are you know doing something illegal according to the israeli law and according to the international law and and how do you organize within all of this I'm not allowed to mobilize uh, any kind of protests. I'm not allowed to organize. I'm not allowed to participate. And as, to, as I, I said in the beginning that any kind of general assembly is illegal according to the Israeli military law. In the military system, you have no rights. You have no uh, opportunity to resist the occupation, even peacefully. Do you mean it's literally illegal to organize a protest, even if that protest is nonviolent? It's illegal to invite Israelis and internationals and Americans to come to participate in an olive harvest campaign in Tel Rubeda. One of the questions I had in the Israeli police station once, if I was the organizer for an olive harvest campaign, calling my people, calling internationals and calling Israelis to join me in an olive harvest campaign day. And one of my main charges in the military court now is organizing a protest in 2013 with Obama's mask and Martin Luther King mask and and marching in Shuhada Street chanting songs from the, the civil rights movement here we were Israelis and Palestinians and internationals and I was arrested I spent few days in jail and the Israeli friends they were released on the spot They were not arrested. They were detained, but not arrested. And now I'm paying a price in the military court for organizing that protest. So they they consider me organizing an illegal protest and participating in illegal protest and, you know, refusing the arrest and violating the public peace in that area. Okay, so I actually have another photo that I want to talk about, and I apologize if this is traumatic to look at, because here you are, um, you're in an Israeli army jeep, and you are blindfolded. So can you tell me what's happening? Why are you blindfolded? I was campaigning with If Not Now. It's an American activist group trying to ask the Congress members not to go with APAC to Palestine and Israel and to come with us as Palestinians to show them the real image of the occupation. So I posted a video on the social media asking them not to join APAC. The Israeli settlers harassed me when I was filming the video and showed the street. And the Israeli soldiers and the Israeli settlers saw 
the influence of the video I shared on Twitter with Fnat now and the Israeli soldiers wanted revenge for doing something like that. So I was arrested, ill-treated, handcuffed, blindfolded for a few hours and, and then they, they released me. It happens a lot to me and it depends on the soldier ideology what to do with me because the army gives them a space to do whatever they like and there is no accountability for the Israeli soldiers for violating the Israeli law or violating my basic human rights. I was attacked many times. I was beaten many times by the, by the Israeli soldiers. I received a lot of threats, death threats sometimes from the Israeli soldiers. It just, it looks so scary. I'm always scared. I think they may shoot me anytime. They give me that even impression that you will be killed. You will be shot anytime here in the area. So they tell me, leave, leave the country. We will reach you in your house. We will come tonight to your house and we'll, we'll shoot you. We will arrest you from your house. We will destroy your house. We will wake you up in the night. It happened a lot. They came to my house. They arrested me during the night. It's a military occupation where they have free hands to do whatever they want. You know, something I've been thinking about is um, how do you explain all of this to little children? How do you prepare them for this life? I, I try to empower the children to know their rights and to know what is allowed and what is not allowed by the Israeli military law because if they know the law, they get much less harassment from the Israeli soldiers because the Israeli soldiers, they violate the Israeli law. And when they see you know the law, they sometimes let you go without any real harassment. I ask them to be calm and to tell uh, us as activists about what happens to them, to inform the human rights organizations or to inform anybody passing by that they are detained. So we know and we go and we send people to defend them. And then to if they arrest them or detain them, I tell them what to do in the police station, what to say in the police station, not to speak without a lawyer, not to accept to sign any paper without reading it with their families, not to answer any questions they don't know the answers, not to say yes when the answer is no, when to ask to go to the restroom and insist to go to the restroom, when to shout, scream if they touch them or if they hit them or if they threaten them, when to even file complaints against the Israeli police and the Israeli army and to follow up and, and to be strong in front of the soldiers and not to give up and not to show them their fear. Because if they see you uh, afraid of them, they do more and they harm you. Wow. It's just crazy to think that little kids have to grow up with all of this, um, all of this military, all of this violence. It's not only military, by the way. You know, to live in Hebron, you, you feel that you are in a military zone first. Then you see settlers who are controlling the military themselves. You feel that the injustice, the inequality, the white supremacy, that in one hand, the settlers, they get whatever they want and they can do whatever they want and they can carry guns, they can attack you, they can attack your house, they can prevent you from going to your, to your work or to your school, they can prevent the ambulance to reach you in the house, they have water 10 times more than you, you are starving for, for, for basic needs and they, I can say that you can see 
people living next to you. So to, to, to be able to get that life, they violated the, your basic human rights. You can see that their lives are more than important than your life. And their presence and existence is more important than yours. In spite that it's your city, it's your father's, grandfather's city. They come from the U.S. to come in Hebron to tell me, God gave them it. What, what God? I tell them, what God is giving you something is mine? Why God gave it to you, not to me? If we believe in that God is fair and God is giving us justice and giving us equality, you should not believe that you deserve something more than me from God. We as humans should believe that we are all equal. We don't see that. We see the inequality every day. We see that we suffer because we don't exist with occupation and because we refuse to be slaves. You know, to get a little bit more rights, you, sh you should accept to be a slave. You should accept to go exist with occupation. If I want to get a permit to go to Jerusalem, I should accept occupation. I should coexist with the occupation. I should accept that the settlers are occupying my houses and they are taking my resources and they are giving not, give us nothing and I should be thankful to that. If you say no to that, if you don't accept that in any way, you are blacklisted and you are threatened, smeared. That what is the daily life. And you didn't choose to live there, by the way. They came to you. You didn't choose to go to them. They came to you. We're going to end this episode soon. And I, I really hate to say goodbye to it because there's just so much more to talk about. So many more examples to, to talk about. But um, I wanted to include at the end just a snippet of conversation that Issa and I had um, during that second interview. Um, last episode, I, I ended with a very typical exchange about Shahada Street and what it had once been and what it's become. And um, this time I want to end with another sort of similarly typical conversation. And this one is just about what it's like trying to get around, trying to get back home to Palestine when um, all of your borders are controlled by a security apparatus that is not your own. I usually hate to travel. You know, in one hand, I see it very, very important. In the other hand, I hate to travel because of the, the harassment, because of the difficulties and the obstacles in our way to travel and go uh, to reach more uh, communities and to, you know, to have our voices uh, heard anywhere in the world. If I announce in advance that I'm coming to the United States, it's very possible that they stop me at the borders because Israel is controlling the borders from uh, Hebron, my city where I live, to Jordan because I'm not allowed to go to Ben Gurion in Tel Aviv. So I go to Amman. So I need to travel from Hebron to past the Palestinian borders, then the Israeli borders, then the Jordanian borders. So I pass three uh, controls, three, three securities to go out from Hebron to go 
to Amman Airport to come here. Jordan, yes. On the, on the way back in, it's the same. It's the same security level, mm-hmm. but it will be extra security from the Israelis because who is getting in, they get extra security check from. It's not security, by the way. Because it's harassment. It's not a normal security check in any airport here in the U.S. In spite of the extra screening we get because of our skin color or because of what they think that we are as as uh, because of the Islamophobia, because of the Arab phobia, or whatever you want to call it, or because of any kind of of people in color phobia, I think the Israeli borders and measures are not for security it's about harassment it's about making you hate yourself and treat you not as an equal human being we are not seen as equal human being to them we are stereotyped as terrorists who deserve to be to be treated as they treat us that the palestinians are humans and they want to be equal with everybody they have families, they have education, they want to have jobs, and they want to be part of the international community. Okay, um, I want to thank Isa so much for being here. Until next time, this has been Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson Gaston. Our guest today has been Isa Amro, Palestinian activist extraordinaire, targeted Palestinian activist extraordinaire. And you can find the show on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com.